Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good to see you all. Kenneth, welcome to the team. So excited to have you. I want to encourage you to introduce yourself to Kenneth when you get the chance. It's exciting to see God elevating, raising up leaders, leaders here at Sun River from within and on the outside. We want to be a culture that multiplies leaders and equips the saints for the work of the ministry. This is not a one-man show. It's not a five-boy band production. It's not what this is. Wherever you're at, we want to help and equip you to lead and to be a part of the body of Christ. Men and women, male and female, both. And so I just want to encourage you as we jump into God's word this morning and exhort you, no matter where you're at, you're not too lost, you're not too addicted, you're not too messed up, your life doesn't have to be all put together. That's what the gospel does, and that's what we want to see. We want to see God glorified in multiplying leaders. We're going to be talking about leadership today. I've preached on this um, in the past. Grab your Bibles and go to Titus. We just read it, chapter 1. Going to be looking at verse five through nine, and focused on leadership in the church. There is a parallel between church leadership and whitewater rafting. When Heidi and I lived in Colorado, we loved to whitewater raft. We went on multiple trips, specifically down Browns Canyon, right outside of Buena Vista, Colorado, down the Colorado-Arkansas River. You see the picture behind me is one of those uh, trips that we took in the middle of a rapid called, I believe, Zoom Flume. These are level three, four plus rapids. Level one is like easy level. That's American River by our church here. Level four is advanced, level five expert level, uh, level six is doom. You know, it's just, you just don't do that. There are uh, multiple class three fours down this 10 mile chute. There's pinball, there's zoom flume, raft ripper is a uh, big one. The scariest one though is called Widowmaker. Name says it all. And when you go whitewater rafting, there are 10 safety tips to survive. They put you through these safety tips every time you go. It's kind of a 101 on preparation for whitewater rafting. Again, you need to look at these and see the parallel between church leadership and whitewater rafting. Rule number one, choose a licensed professional rafting outfit. This is not hey, um, where are the pool floaties? Let's go. No, you got to have professionals leading you down who are trained. That is Heidi's brother. Leave that picture up for a few minutes. That is Heidi's to my right, okay, with the, uh, the glasses on and the hat. He's the river guide. He went and got professionally trained, worked for Noah's Ark. Here's this kid I knew since he was 11 years old, and now my life is in his hands. Look at his face. He's the professional. And we're getting ready to shoot down, I think, Zoom Flume or Widowmaker. Rule number two, always wear a PFD, personal flotation device. 
Number three, be safe and comfortable. That is the dumbest safety tip you could be given when whitewater rafting. I think what they mean is wear a helmet or proper equipment. Make sure, rule number four, that you have the right outer gear for the trip. What this means is insect repellent, sunscreen, you're prepared because you're out in nature. Five minutes into the trip, a horsefly lands on Heidi's face and bites her. Her face swelled up like a pumpkin. That was the whole trip. You can't see it there because it's, well, you can. The cross is in the way. The cross is always in the way. (laughs) Rule number five, hold the paddle properly. It's a big tip. Hold the, there's only one guy in the picture holding the proper, the paddle properly. That's me with my tongue out. Josh took his hand off the paddle. Jessie's kind of got her hands on the paddle. Heidi's falling down in. Now you may see two shoes. That's Steve, Heidi's sister's husband. He's completely fallen in the boat. You don't even see him, but his paddle is suspended in midair. No hands on that paddle. And we didn't lose the paddle. It was an adventure all by itself. Rule number six, stay in the boat. That's a given. Just stay in the boat. Rule number seven, know the proper swimming techniques. You should be able to swim if going whitewater rafting. I really, really like rule number nine. Again, all of these rules and tips apply to church leadership and church in some way, shape, or form. I can make a parallel to them all, but that's not necessarily the sermon. Rule number nine, never panic. (laughs) Panicking is a complete waste of time. They teach you that. (laughs) And rule number 10, listen to your guide during the safety talk and always on the water. You got to know the commands. Paddle left, paddle right, paddle back, lean forward. A big one is high side. When your guide yells high side, you climb to the high side of the boat so that the boat doesn't capsize. Listen, in church, in leadership, we are not going to have to worry about the rapids of pinball and zoom flume and raft Ripper, but when the rapids of the culture hit the church, we had better be prepared. Following Jesus is really a lot like white water rafting. Again, we don't worry about Zoom Flume and Widowmaker, but we better be prepared for the rapids of worship wars, devil's doctrine cultural, relevant, rash. Boy, that one makes the church really itchy. Or class four plus rapid COVID masks. You gotta be prepared for that divisive trigger in the church. Kent Hughes wisely says about church leadership, godly leadership is not determined by the absence of of difficulty, but in the prudent discipline of handling problems when, when difficulties come. The Apostle Paul is encouraging his young apprentice, Titus, 
on how to lead the church on the island of Crete. We talked about it last week. And there is a lot of chaos, a lot of turbulence, white water, level fives all around. And in the next five verses, Paul is going to focus on leadership. The outline is really simple. Choosing the elders' leaders, the elder leader character, and the elder leader conduct. I put it this way. Paul is going to tell Timothy the importance of choosing elders, which is determined by their character, and their character defines their conduct. Choosing an elder is determined by the elder's character, and his character defines and dictates his conduct. In regards to these five verses, J. Vernon McGee says, this is a picture of the ideal church. According to Titus, there has to be a high standard of leadership, a high standard of doctrine, and a high standard of purity in life ready for every good work. This is a picture of the New Testament church, the modern church, he says. So grab your Bibles and let's look at these three areas. Choosing elders, leaders. He says this, verse 5, is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. Crete, this island, is a heavily populated island known by most ancient writers as the island of a hundred cities. Paul had planted church there, multiple churches, He initiated the work, and then he handed it off to Titus in order to do two things, put what remains in order and appoint elders in every city. Let's look at these two things real quick because it's important in understanding how we are supposed to multiply, choose, and elevate leaders at Sun River Church. The verb rendered set in order is a double compound word, It literally means thoroughly set straight further. It's a continuum of what has already been established. It suggests that Titus should continue to do the pattern of what his mentor had already shown him. Paul finds the churches there broken and twisted. We're going to read about this with apostasy. And they need realigned Set straight comes from the Greek term ortho, which in medical terms describes the process of setting and splinting broken bones. This is where we get the words orthodontics or orthopedics. Paul's precise meaning here is set straight straight, align, 
Many of you have heard stories about Zach breaking bones. He, he broke two bones before he was six. He broke his arm in half. My brother's wife was watching him and she called and said, hey, he fell out of the treehouse and hurt his arm. I pull up, she walks out. She's in complete shock. She's sweating. She's like, I think he broke it. And Zach reaches out for me and his arm's like dangling. I just looked at Lorraine and said, yeah, that's definitely broken. And the doctor came into the office and aligned it and set it perfectly. He's almost normal. <laughs> and then at age five, he breaks his femur in half. We thought maybe he had a bone deficiency and uh, a rare break. He had to have surgery and the surgeon was a retired engineer, became an orthopedic surgeon. He was precise and ran rods in, and again, he's almost normal. The youth are over here laughing in the middle of the sermon because he's probably cracking jokes. You didn't think I heard you, did you? Yeah, Zach. <laughs> he's, he's using this illustration to set order up in the church to make it a straight path based on the leadership Churches that have a low standard of leadership have a weak quality in the church. Weak churches have weak leaders. Titus is getting direction on how he's supposed to do this. He has been thoroughly trained. He's done this before in other churches. He knows exactly what his mentor is expecting. Titus is going to train another generation of leaders in the same manner that Paul had prepared him to do. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So he needs to set things in order. And then number two, Paul directs Titus to appoint elders. To appoint leaders, this word elder. I think it's really important to note the Greek terms are often interchanged when Paul uses them. Presbyteros and Episcopal, they're interchanged to mean the same office, pastor, elder, leader, bishop. Again, I talked about this in last July. I encourage you to go watch that message as well. I break it down a little bit, diff- a little bit deeper than I'm going to do today. These two names are oftentimes interchanged. Many commentators and expositors agree that they refer to the same position, but have slight different emphasis. Same person, same position, and different emphasis on roles. Oftentimes, presbyteros highlights the person and episkopos stresses their function. But the major factor here is appointing leaders in every city. And Paul says, as I have directed, indicating some churches did not have qualified leaders. We know this as we continue. We're going to look at this as we move through Titus. We're going to see verse 10 next week that there are rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. Chapter 3, verse 9, there are foolish leaders leading with fo- into foolish um, 
controversies and genealogies and disputes. There's a need for sound spiritual leadership and moral example is absolutely urgent. He says, set in order, make it straight, appoint leaders that are qualified. There's a standard of leadership. And he makes this explicit. Listen as I read these. They're pretty much self-explanatory. I don't have to go very deep for you to understand. There's a level of leadership. And wherever you're at in this room, you're not outside of God's transforming work to move you to a level where you are qualified by God's Holy Spirit in you to lead. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In all honesty, way too often, churches seek the wrong qualities when choosing leaders. Sun River Church, this is absolutely imperative that we as a congregation, as followers of Jesus, understand what God's authoritative word says about leaders in his church. It's the framework of the church. And in a few months, you are going to nominate new leaders. We'll have three seats opening up on the elder board. And we are trying to create a culture, like I talked about last week, six to seven months, the elders went through these qualifications. We also went through the specific marks of ministry leaders, deacon and deaconess. Some of you are fulfilling the roles of deacon and deaconess, and we need to formalize that so that the structure of this house of God does not fall apart when white water rapids crash against its walls. The list is imperative for us to know. This isn't just something I'm making up. This isn't my standard. This is God's standard in his authoritative word. We have to take this seriously. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary, puts it very, very pointedly. Today, we neglect giving proper attention to leadership issues in the church at the peril and detriment of the church. Not only will the church, God's household, not properly be led and managed, but it will also be rendered vulnerable to the influence of false teaching, worldliness, and a variety of countervailing cultural and social trends. The standard of leadership is imperative. It's a non-negotiable. We cannot lower that standard because of feeling or because of relationships or just wanting to, to all get along. No, there's a standard listed here that separates 
And to be fully honest, nobody, not even myself, fits this standard apart from the grace and Holy Spirit of God. When false teaching comes into the church, when worldliness creeps in, when completely gospel-depleted truths, which are lies, creep in culturally, social trends, weaken the church. When this happens, it's because the church is blind to God's will and seeking man's will, man's ways, man's understanding. It's a man-centered church, and every church wrestles and fights with this. This is why we need the authoritative word of God. The church needs servant leaders who bear the same qualities of Jesus because the Holy Spirit is in them, and they're yielding to the Holy Spirit. They're not quenching the Holy Spirit. Godly leaders that model grace, biblical grace, not worldly shame. They extend mercy. They demonstrate compassion. They exude joy. They cultivate an atmosphere of peace and encourage others and participate in allowing others, equipping others to use their gifts and abilities. Leaders that are keen with discernment. They don't flee from the false accusation of being judgmental. This is really important. The culture has crept in and said, you know, you're just judging everybody. No, we're discerning the house of God. I'm not going to judge the non-believer But the standard in the house of God, in the family of God, we are as leaders to discern that truth. In doing so, in discerning that, we don't want to bring people down. We want to elevate them to godliness. This is what a godly leader does. This is what a servant of Jesus does in the house of God. They refuse to seek their own way or maneuver themselves in positions of power. That's the exact opposite of a godly leader that is listed here. And to be honest with you, most commentators will say men like this are rare. And what I say is men like this are impossible apart from the grace of God. It's just just that simple. Paul describes the kind of man suitable for this high and holy office with 14 or 15, depending on which translation you're looking at, terms. I'm going to fly through these real quick. And we can't lower our standard here. Our mission in leadership is to elevate the spirit in men and women so they meet the standard. Not to lower the standard because the flesh is too strong. No. The standard is set. A man or leader must be above reproach. This means blameless without accusation. It does not mean sinless. I mean, not sinless. It doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean that they're living or they're in sin. It doesn't mean they're free from sin. 
My mind's going a thousand miles an hour. John Calvin put it this way, they're not marred by disgrace. This general quality or characteristic, by the way, frames all the rest. And all the rest of the the terms, the characteristics, fit in three compartments. Above reproach in home life, above reproach in public life, above reproach in church life. It doesn't mean sinless, but it means, as 1 John explains, that they're being sanctified and sinning less because of the Holy Spirit. That's what I wanted to say a second ago. They're a husband of one wife. The Greek literally reads a one-woman man. They're devoted to one woman. It implies sexual purity and a reputation of devotion to his spouse. Not just on February 14th, but every day of the year. For some of the men in the room, they just went, I forgot it's Valentine's Day. Just play that card. I just love you every day. And your wife's going to be smart and say, except for today. So there's time. You can join me after church. I'll be going to Bel Air to get some flowers. <laughs> the volcanic destruction of sexual impurity destroys the church. It destroys it. Man, I'm just going to speak to you for a second. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's the silent plague. Pornography and lust and all the things that grip us in the palm of our hands. And the culture, even in the church, is going to say, no, you can do it. Don't tell anybody because don't buy the devil's doctrine. Don't allow worldly guilt and shame to keep you in a place from allowing the spirit to transform you and bring you to a place where you have been transformed and you're holy and pure in God's sight and you're living the sanctified life, not controlled by sin. Ray Van Ness puts it this way, as goes the moral character of the church leader, so goes the church. Nothing destroys faster than moral failure which always has an echoing effect for years after years after years. I'm just going to be honest with you about my sex life. I learned at a young age through brokenness that I would follow the pattern. I would follow the pattern of my father or my grandfather unless I allowed the spirit to change me. Because early off in my marriage with Heidi, I thought, okay, now I'm married. I hope you guys are listening. I'm married now, so now I'm not going to struggle with lust. I'm married. I get all the benefits of marriage. It didn't go away. And I felt guilt and shame, so I hid it. I hid it from Heidi. I hid it from everybody. I tried to fight it, but I felt this 
gravitational pull to sexual immaturity and impurity. So thankful that internet wasn't invented yet. Still had to go to 7-Eleven to look at stuff or to get magazines. It's a different day. It's a different culture. But through the brokenness of sexual impurity in my family and witnessing it in other areas, God, by his grace, opened my eyes. I developed a life skill that I want to encourage all the men in this room to develop. You see, we are called to confess our sins. Sin that is in the dark reigns power over your heart and life, men. Period. I personally experienced it. The more I hit it, the more power it had. It was like a gravitational pull. I would not be married today. My kids would be a mess. My daughter would be a mess for sure. It's never too late, men. It's never too late to confess. But the life skill is to begin to confess temptation. There's not a day that goes by where I don't confess temptation. I would rather tell Heidi where I'm being tempted than tell her where it's in. Because temptation isn't a sin. So when everything fell apart in my life at age 23, 24, right before we moved here, I confessed everything to Heidi. Broke her, but it strengthened our marriage. And then from that day forward, I just promised her, when I'm tempted, specifically in the area of sexual immorality, I'm being tempted to lust or look or any of the sort, I tell her. And there are other men in my life that I communicate this with because what I've learned is the life skill of confessing temptation, when you expose temptation to the light, it's rendered powerless. When you conceal temptation, it gives birth to sin and it controls you. And don't let worldly shame control you. If you confess, God forgives. He restores. This is why, men, you need to be in a one-on-one connect. You need to have men in your life that you can pour into, that can hold you accountable. And biblical accountability is not confessing your sin all the time. Biblical accountability is exposing temptation to the light and then holding each other accountable to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Number three, his children are faithful. This is what the Greek says. Children who believe. This word means faithful. They're faithful to their father. Describes a man who effectively effectively accomplishes in his home what he hopes to facilitate at church as a leader. Respect and obedience. This isn't uh, dictating salvation Fathers don't save their kids. It's what God does. Starting in verse 7, not arrogant, not self-willed, describes a submissive spirit, a self-willed person, despises even the basic authority others may have. They want to go their own way and do as they please. Oftentimes, this characteristic plays out like this. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? 
This is common with, with men. You're judging me? No, no, not arrogant, not self-willed. This is something the Spirit transforms us in. Not quick-tempered means a man chooses what will move him. He has control on what moves him to anger or appropriate anger. Appropriate anger would be directed towards blasphemy, abuse, brutality. But he doesn't take justice into his own hands. This man is not quick-tempered. He avoids outbursts of anger, angry words, especially when confronted or in the midst of a confrontation. Number six, Paul says, not a drunkard, not addicted to wine. This isn't restricted to alcoholism. The idea behind this characteristic is that the elder, the leader, avoids surrendering control of his body to the effects of any substance at all. It doesn't mean that he doesn't drink wine. It means he doesn't get drunk. Number seven, he's not violent. This describes a man whose anger triggers him to aggression and violence that's acted out. Not greedy. Refers to the disposition of greedy gain. Listen, Savvy and successful businessmen make wonderful elders in the church when they come to their wealth honorably and are generous. He lists these don't do, don't do, don't do, and then he gives some do's. They have to be hospitable. This means love of strangers. In the primary sense, a stranger in the New Testament was someone who was foreign or different than they were. This is what hospitable means. doesn't mean hospitable to those you like or that you're like. That's hospitable. But this term is who aren't like you, and maybe you don't like them, but you are still kind. Lover of stranger. Lover of what is good. This describes a deep-seated love and submission for the Lord for his word and his will. His will reigns so that your will, my will, is self-controlled, sensible. This word self-control or sensible means of sound mind and judgment. The leader has to be upright. This means just. Just A just man seeks fairness for others and rarely fairness for himself. And then the word holy, meaning devout, speaks of someone who authentically and completely devotes himself to the Lord, again, at home, in public, or at church. This person is disciplined. They exercise self-control. I could go down the list of all 14 or 15 of those, and I could give you times where I lost my temper, 
times where I was acted out in violence, times where I wasn't honest or just. I mean, I've disqualified myself in every single one of these. There's no man in our church or in the world apart from Jesus that fits this standard. This is something that we're all progressing to, but we don't lower the standard. We don't lower the standard. We lean more into the Holy Spirit to transform us as men and women and as followers of Jesus. Because this character that we strive through is Christ's character in us, and it defines our conduct. And this is where I want to spend a little bit more time. The conduct of an elder, because the characteristics are imperative in defining the conduct and the decisions that elders make. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. If you're underlining or marking anything in your Bible, these next or this next verse is where I want you to focus. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Underline that. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Underline, give instruction in sound doctrine. And also rebuke those who contradict it. Underline that. This, based on the characteristics of a godly man, is the root and the responsibility of an elder or a leader in the church. The character and the conduct, the root and the responsibility. Verse 9, he must hold fast to the faithful word. This refers to men who base their lives on sound doctrine as it was taught by a trustworthy authority. During the New Testament, during this time, that trustworthy authority were the apostles. Today, today it's the scriptures. It's God's word. We hold on, we cling to the scriptures as they've been taught. Listen, the first and last qualities above reproach and holding firm to the trustworthy word in Paul's eyes are equal. They're directly connected. Paul is concerned. He knows that they have to, leaders, hold to the trustworthy word because it, verse one, we read it last week, accords with, produces, aligns with godliness. Characteristics of a spiritual leader qualify him in regards to holding firm to the trustworthy word to two crucial activities. He says he must grip white knuckle on the paddle in the white water rapids. By the way, the paddle is God's word in white water rafting. He must grip with both hands, white knuckle, hold firm to the trustworthy word for two reasons. And there's two words that elevate or open the door to these two reasons, to these two active reasons. He says two words, hold firm to the trustworthy word so 
that. Those two words open up the door. Do you see that? So that he may, number one, give instruction in sound doctrine. An elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. D.A. Carson explains this in his commentary. No matter how good they are at listening, hand-holding, or personal encouragement, if they cannot teach the Word of God as they are if they cannot teach the word of God, they are disqualified from the officer role of pastor, elder, or overseer. Of course, he goes on, some pastors may exercise all or most of their teaching ministry in one-on-one or small groups. Not all will be equally adapted to a large group or preaching platform, but scripture leaves no space that the elder pastor or leader cannot teach. You have to be able to handle the word of God. You cling to it so that you can teach with sound doctrine. And on our website, we're going to be listing out these distinctive sound doctrine, this, the distinctives, the essentials. Any doctrine that infringes on the gospel must be refuted, must be exposed, must be talked about. We have to be rooted in sound doctrine. Otherwise, the rapids are going to wash us away. You hold fast to the truth so that you can teach in sound doctrine. And the elder must be, number two, able to refute those who contradict it. Refute. This word means to be disproved by, to contest, and to correct must refute, must be able to teach sound doctrine and then refute it, especially and specifically when it compromises the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. Souls are at stake. If you twist the gospel, then false teaching comes in and people believe things that aren't true as if they are true and it costs them dearly. And our job as elders is to be very in tune to this. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example. If I stood up here and I said, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to remember. We're going to celebrate what God did for us. This is the gospel. That he died and buried and was rose again. And we're going to do this remembering with the bread and the juice. We're going to remember this is a sacrament to what God has done for us. Some of you may now be alarmed on what I just said. Some of you may not. Words and definitions matter. Everything I just said sounds really good because you've heard it here before. But what you haven't heard is the word sacrament. Because we don't believe that communion is a sacrament. A sacrament in the church is something you do sacrificially to earn God's grace. You may think, oh, Andy, that's, that's nitpicking. No, we believe it's an ordinance. 
We believe God commanded us to remember, and we do this as an ordinance in the church, the Lord's table, to remember what Christ did. If I call it a sacrament, you may not know that, and that's fine, but a sacrament is something you earn. It's something you do. You don't earn the gospel. You see how even this small little word can lead people to believe they've got to do something. And if they don't do it, if they don't come to the table, and there are people who believe if you don't do Holy Communion, you don't go to heaven. Holy Communion doesn't save you. You see, as leaders, we have to be rooted. As a church, we have to be rooted in sound doctrine. We have to be willing to call out False teaching that creeps into the church. We have been talking a lot about this with our leadership team, especially our Sunday leadership team in regards to the songs we sing, singing songs that are theocentric, God-centered, minimizing songs that are me-centered. There is an aspect of songs that are me-centered that are appropriate, that God saves me and he rescues me, but a lot of our worship needs just to be about him and who he is. And what he does, you have to be able to refute. The theological dictionary of the New Testament uses these exact words in regards to this word refute to show people their sin and summons them to repentance. Paul has no interest in winning philosophical debates or splitting theological hairs. For him, the danger of those who contradict sound doctrine and creep in with false teaching, corrupt souls. In regards to church leadership, John Calvin says it this way. I'm going to close with this. He says, a pastor needs two voices. An elder, pastor, bishop needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. Scripture supplies the elder, leader, pastor with the means for doing both so that the person who has been correctly instructed in Scripture will be able to guide those who want to learn and refute those who are enemies of the truth. Listen, Sun River Church. If the congregation is to grow in maturity and to serve its purpose as God's intended will, then the leaders must be worthy examples for the individual members to copy or emulate. Like I said, weak leaders make weak churches. Weak doctrine kills churches. We have to know the truth. I want to exhort you to be like the Bereans who listen to the leaders and then they search scriptures to test if what they were saying was true. Just don't take my word for it. The enemy is clever. He wants to deceive. And so we stand on God's word. It holds sway and it holds authority in our lives. And we pursue God through his word and allow the spirit to be fed, not quenched, so that the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of Andy, 
The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, manifests itself. I hope this encourages and empowers you. Whatever you have going on in your life, men or women, allow God and the gospel to transform you to be who God wants you to be. I have watched him in the last 15 years do amazing things in people's lives. I never dreamt to see lives transformed and leaders elevating to godliness. I want to invite all the men in the room or at home to stand right now. We're going to talk about women in leadership and deacon and deaconesses, but I want to exhort the men right now. Whatever age you are, from Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you save yourself and you save your hearers. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And man, I'm talking to you. We need godly biblical manhood in this church. I don't care where you're at. The spirit can change your life. If you believe, if you surrender, if you pursue him. This is what we want. This is what the church needs. Biblical manhood, men that know how to throw a punch and know how to take a punch. Something that's lost in our culture. Not out of violence and anger. Out of love for God and grace and truth. And so as you stand, men, I'm going to pray over you. And exhort God, or exhort you to follow God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, I am so grateful for the way you work in the church. You know every single man in this room. You created them. You gifted them. You've given them talents and abilities and thoughts and insights. And before they even think, you know what they're thinking. Before they doubt, you know what they're doubting. Before they follow or pursue destructive behavior, Lord, your grace and mercy is present. So will you, by your spirit, open up eyes and hearts and minds to pursue you? Will you do something in our church and in each individual's lives here, male or female, that only you can do? Will you transform? Will you renew? Will you forgive? Will you offer irresistible grace? Lord, we know you do. You promise it. You do not force it. You promise it. And then you call us to respond. Lord, above everything else, I ask you to strengthen this church. Strengthen families, strengthen marriages, strengthen men and women, moms and dads, that we can honor you and fulfill your calling to help people find and follow you. In your name, amen.